0: Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbalay, and this is a continuation of the Biota podcast. For more information on the Biota podcast, please go to biota.org/podcast. For folks who are listening in this evening, the call-in number is six four six two zero 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 six four zero. And for folks who are listening at a later date, this is a historically recorded podcast. I think the date at which it was recorded. Let me just double-check was November 26, 2008. However, I'm recording this because I will be going away. And if you're listening to this podcast currently, you're hearing it because I'm away. So folks are free to call in. There is also an active chat room. The contact number is 646-200-0640. The topic for this evening is going to be how artificial life could develop artificial intelligence and how to create a simulation that keeps evolving. These are, in fact, two topics which are ultimately intertwined, and I'm going to use this evening's discussion to talk a little bit more about how to write these kind of simulations. I do invite folks who are listening in to call in to participate. The call-in number, again, six four six two zero 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 six four zero. Because this is a time independent podcast, I'm just going to tell a little anecdote. I normally give some news and notes here, uh, but news and notes will be relatively immaterial with regards to uh, the nature of this recording. So, recently I noticed that uh, John P. Daigle and Robert Rice were both in Raleigh, North Carolina. Robert Rice, who has appeared on previous Bios Lives, as has John P. Daigle, uh, is normally based in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, but just by chance, I saw that the two of them were going to both be in Raleigh John had moved up to to Raleigh, I guess for some meetings or something. Uh, so I contacted them both and let them know that they were going to be in the same location and This method has been used in order to create uh, grey some chapters in order to link folks who are part of the biota community and it's something that I'd like to maintain as part of my duties as the uh, biota editor. make sure that biotians and shared locations get together and actively communicate. It's this kind of process which is also critical in creating Grey Thumb Chapters and for folks familiar with this podcast I give a lot of shout outs to Grey Thumb Chapters and also assistance to folks who want to create a Grey Thumb Chapter in their own location. One of the easiest ways to get this kind of information is to join the biota.org Facebook group and that way you can see other fellow biotans where they are, and if by chance you're in the same location or a similar location to other biotans, you can organize some kind of get-together. The current uh, Greytham groups that seem to be actively working are Boston and Silicon Valley. There are also chapters in London and the Netherlands. I haven't heard any updates with regards to... When there is going to be a new London chapter meeting, nor the Netherlands, although Gerald de Jong is a frequent contributor to Biota Lives, so he will no doubt give updates. But the important thing with regards to the uh, the creation of Graytham chapters is that it just requires uh, two or more motivated individuals. If you look at the creation of Graytham Boston, it was really two or three motivated individuals initially and similarly with regards to Silicon Valley. So I think they've gone, all the Grey Thumb chapters have gone in completely different directions with regards to what they actively do. Boston has remained relatively academic when, you know, the the giving of presentations or after the presentations, I hear that there's oftentimes a lot of congregation and discussion. The Silicon Valley chapter, in contrast, whilst they have, uh, presentations. It's really more about a group of friends that get together, and I think what uh, Greythumb Silicon Valley has highlighted is that when you have a group of like-minded folk meeting on the same location, there is continued motivation to get together. There's a kind of lazing of ideas and discussion points, and recently Al Lundell has been giving news stories to, to update the community locally and also give a particular bio Biota twist on stuff that's coming out in the news. So really, as you uh, you know gather together in groups, obviously, you can find your own mediums with regards to what you want to talk about and how you want to hold these kind of uh, get-togethers. But it's really just important in one way. We communicate electronically via podcasts, via email, via this kind of communication. But I think the ability to actually gather together with folk and also give feedback and things like that is, is very important. From my own projects, I don't know how this will historically play out, but I am Darwin. uh, The videos associated with I-Am-Darwin.org were recorded at the recent Greytham-Silicon Valley meeting, and shouts out to Al Lundell for that. As you're listening to this, you may have time still to contribute I Am Darwin videos, but something to consider. The call-in number, again, 646-200-0640, for folks who don't want to call the US number, there is an active chat room which is inviting all participants it will enable you to interject questions, get a sense of what is going on if you don't understand what is being talked about. But the topic for this evening, how artificial life could help develop artificial intelligence and also how to create a simulation that keeps evolving. Now, when I came to these two questions, and these two questions were submitted by Rudolf Pinakoff in the Netherlands, shout out to Rudolf for submitting these two wonderful topics, it occurred to me that they were fundamentally the same problem. But I think in order to come to this conclusion, I probably need to take a couple of steps back and do some analysis with regards to the questions of artificial life into artificial intelligence and also the questions of kind of continuous evolution in artificial life simulation, So, the first question is really what is intelligence? And per prior narrative, if folks can go back to the uh, Roy Plotnick uh, Can Artificial Life Explain the Cambrian Explosion podcast, you may remember Roy giving a basic interpolation of um, kind of floating creatures in the pre Cambrian period that moved into feeding grounds and how they sussed out where these feeding grounds were and how this motivated intelligence in some regard slowly but surely it moved in that direction and through my own development of my own thinking i have always thought of intelligence as a kind of continuation of evolution it's a, a kind of survival method which really exists on the same continuum as things like big teeth uh so you know from feeding ground searching to carnivorousness i mean it's all part of the same continuum in some regard and when you look at intelligence in this way It is in some way removed from uh, what I like to consider the anthropomorphic divide or just the idea that there is some kind of human superintelligence which is far greater than any other creature. This is certainly echoed by uh, recent conversations with Dick Gordon, and I think it's an interesting line in the sand with regards to artificial life simulators, is how they come to uh, approach intelligence, and certainly I'm going to discuss this a little bit more in this very podcast. So... The question with regards to intelligence in terms of some kind of survival continuum kind of begs the question how you rate intelligent systems. And in Dick Gordon's book, I wrote about this quite extensively because ultimately, in my chapter for Dick Gordon's book, I was trying to explore this idea that intelligence was actually an emergent property and should come out of artificial life simulations, but more importantly, that artificial life simulations could be used to, to greater understand intelligence in some fundamental sense. I mean, I think if we look at the, the contemporary problems in modern science... Intelligence is one of those problems and means and method of describing intelligence, and I think artificial life is ideally located in order to deal with this kind of problem and talk to a greater degree about means of quantifying intelligence, but also explaining the evolution of intelligence in some quite profound way. So in Dick Gordon's book, the the metric for intelligence that I use, and this was mainly due to the fact that I wanted to characterize systems that were more intelligent than humans and find a good metric to understand where human intelligence fitted in the kind of phylogenetic scale of, of intelligence capacity with the view that I wanted to show that there were vastly more intelligent systems than human intelligence and you always need a good metric in order to conduct that kind of proof so the metric I came down to was how hard the systems were to kill with regards to, you know, what the necessary stopping power was. I think I used a, a Teddy Roosevelt metaphor in this regard. But the idea of kind of exponential values relating to, uh, you know, it, it took one human to take down the intelligent system versus 10 versus 100 and so on. And this creates an exponential metric where, you know, when it takes one human, the the um, let's call it by intelligence metric value is at zero uh, when it takes ten humans. The metric value is at one when it takes a hundred humans. It's at two. So this kind of progression with regards to uh, intelligent metrics, and of course it begs the question that there are negative exponents as well, where it uh, you know takes far fewer than a single human, or actually proportionally um, less intelligence in order to kill an intelligent system so therefore you have a kind of continuum of values between you know negative some large number and positive some large number as a means of defining intelligence where you would assume a human would exist somewhere around zero so from this metric you then return to the idea that um, uh, there's some kind of predatory behavior which is fundamentally intelligence and i think this is a an interesting metric in terms of simulating artificial life environments to use to, you know, filter back to intelligence. I think it provides, um, you know, some kind of continuum link between finding feeding grounds in some regard and moving forward into, you know, creatures that hunt and uh, uh, are cannibalistic or parasitic or all these kind of interrelationships which can... uh, you know, lead towards survival and don't necessarily need to end in death as well. I think, you know, the metric is a a deceptive one in terms of talking about actually killing intelligent systems that uh, I'm sure there is some uh, parasitic analogy in the metric somehow. So, moving from this example, it begs the question, how is one even going to create a simulation where one can have predatory behavior evolving? And if you kind of took a step back and looked at the artificial life systems on offer, certainly the ones that are talked about frequently in Biota Live It, it begs the question how can so many different and divergent sets of simulations all converge on this one term artificial life and I think it's in some regard to do with the um, the presuppositions that the simulator makes when they come to the, you know, the, the process of writing the simulation, leading back to how to write a simulation that keeps evolving. This ultimately is to do with your frame of reference in the simulation that you create. So, I mean, we have good examples of simulations that are solely with regards to movement and evolution of movement. That, you know, may well be interesting in that simulation space, but you then have simulations that presuppose some degree of movement and are looking to, you know, evolve intelligence out of that movement. And that, again, presupposes a particular simulation space. And from then, you have uh, uh, artificial life simulations that... uh, You know, have a certain degree of intelligence and looking to form communities. And then you have uh, simulations that presuppose communities and are, you know, looking to form even larger groups. I mean, I'm thinking here specifically of swarm, which is a, you know, one of the fundamental artificial life simulations in this regard. So if we have a, a phylogenetic scale again of artificial life simulations, it begs the question how can we keep these simulations evolving? Is there a potential to create what Dick Gordon refers to as kind of origins of artificial life simulation that will then give you the origins of artificial intelligence through its progression. I am hopeful that these kind of simulations will exist. I think the the missing element so far has been computational power, but it has also been a a framework in order to use this computational power. And this is what my chapter of Dick Gordon's book focused on as well, this idea that we have... A real gulf and understanding about how we can write more effective artificial life simulations to cover these kind of bases, particularly with regards to contemporary computing ideas of atomization of processing and all kind of stuff that we talk about in a precursory way on, on BIOTA Live. So, filtering into this process, there are two competing ideas which I don't think are necessarily competing but appear to be competing when initially stated. I think the most important thing when you create a simulation environment is the diversity environment. It needs to be an environment which, uh, you know, where simulated entities, simulated agents, be they creating movement, creating intelligence, creating societies, have a sufficient degree of of chaos that they can uh, evolve through it. So you either need a lot of chaos, you need a a very changing environment, an environment that requires a certain degree of evolution, or you need a lot of competition within that environment, or you need both of these factors. And certainly if you look at uh, artificial life simulations that have been relatively successful, they have typically contained... Uh, one or both of these elements. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about these things in the context of, um, you know, how to create a simulation that contains for example, the chaos, uh, the environmental chaos that is needed for uh, evolution to kind of continue uh, through you know, movement, intelligence, communities, and this is in some degree a kind of arbitrary continuum because there are a number of uh, ebbs and flows through this that uh, can create a, a wide variety of outcomes that can't necessarily be described by this continuum. So, let us look at the chaos of the environment. So, there's an interesting question with regards to creating a simulation environment for artificial life simulations and the question really is should you start in a physics simulation should you start in uh, simulating weather or landscape creation or all the elements that will be critical in creating a chaotic environment for you to simulate artificial life and my own View, and I think this comes through, uh, my development of NoteLape and also the assistance that I've given with other folks, uh, the ALSIM folk, uh, um, you know, Dave Kerr, Passively, these kind of folk. There are some great benefits in actually creating a, a physics simulation or an environment simulation first, or at least pretty heavily in parallel with the initial development this has a a certain degree of complexity a certain degree of depth we're going to be talking in in a later podcast about an artificial life curriculum and I think this is an important question for artificial life developers or folks that are interested in starting artificial life development is is there a kind of precursory or is there a barrier of entry with regards to creating these kind of simulations and To a certain extent, just as a kind of popularizer of the ideas of artificial life, I wanted to say no, there isn't, but fundamentally there are some basics that you probably should get used to, obviously things like programming, but also there are various simulation metrics that are useful, Uh, an ability to write uh, standard time-evolving simulations associated with very simple things is a skill that is worthwhile when you start creating an artificialized simulation. My background prior to writing Noble Ape was um, with a variety of different kinds of simulations, landscape simulations, uh, various kinds of uh, flight simulations, UFO simulations, UFO flight simulations, standard games, basically, these kind of things where you are creating an environment and working through that environment in such a way that it provides you know, things that are interesting. Ultimately, what I'm talking about here with regards to complexity and chaos in the environment, it's relatively critical that these things come through the simulation as you start it. So, what do you need for that? Well, I started writing these kind of computational mathematics simulations at a relatively early age. Certainly, I was using principles in calculus before I understood what calculus was fundamentally the ideas of kind of DT time components and these kind of things I was writing considerably before I actually understood what the math was. But you need to have this kind of play element in order to create a a relatively basic simulation environment. The two examples that I have offered in my notes relate to um, flowing water and chaotic weather, but also things like changing terrain uh, and challenges that require evolution of movement or approach. Well this may all sound very complicated. it may sound that it, you know requires multidimensional dimensional calculus and all this kind of stuff but realistically um, you can start with a kind of checkerboard grid related problem and um, create a sufficient level of uh, chaotic detail in order to create quite a comfortable uh, environment for an artificial light simulation certainly Gerium uh, for example pr- provides this very well with his um, bio Simulation, and I think you know there are there are other examples of simple grids that provide just enough chaotic environment for for artificial life simulations to take off. It doesn't have to be particularly complicated. However, the examples that I offer with regards to flowing water and chaotic weather, in particular, let's explore these. Flowing water is actually remarkably simple to write a simulation for uh, if you think of it just in terms of particle chunks or even linear chunks or any degree of volume and movement you can write a relatively simple uh, simulation or at least a physics where you can create uh, fish and plankton and rocks and all these kind of things just because you have a kind of time evolving component you can write impossible water simulations which are kind of uh, rotating around a circle but each processing of almost like a kind of train on track so to speak um, and that would work quite well in terms of the basis of an artificial life simulation. I like the examples of weather because they add, be it land-based, sea-based, or air-born simulations. Uh, weather is a very interesting phenomenon to include. Um, it's certainly something that you know was, was relatively central to the development of Noble Ape, And I moved the weather in a couple of different directions before I settled to the version of weather that I have currently. But the idea of um, even simulated seasons or other kinds of weather effects, things that haven't even been considered in terms of standard biology, ideas of acid rain, these kind of things, uh, precipitation, various nutrients being either removed or deposited by weather environments, I mean, all these kind of things add to the uh, kind of chaotic soup that you want to have in an environment that you have Uh, some kind of uh, evolving uh, simulation components in simulated agents. The other aspect is terrain. And I've talked quite a bit about terrain through previous podcasts, certainly privately with uh, Gerald, also publicly in this podcast with Gerald, with Larry Yeager, with these kind of people who appeared in the podcast previously. And I think the ability to have uh, some diversity of terrain in writing, um, even simple evolving movement simulations, these kind of things is relatively critical. It provides a kind of chaos in an environment, which ultimately just means that the um, the things that come through these kind of simulations uh, tend to be very visually pleasing, or at least through visually reminiscent of things that exist in the real world. And it's often nice to have these kind of connections with the real world in your simulations as points of you know, interrogation or understanding that you can say, well, at least you've gotten that far in terms of what you've done. But in doing this, this is just one part of the, the two-part discussion in terms of uh, chaos or competition. And with regards to competition, this is also something that has been talked about quite a bit with regards to previous simulations. Uh, discussions in the biota community. Certainly, uh, Polyworld springs to mind. Also, obviously, a lot of Joe Rim, uh, Dave Kerr, uh, Swarm, a wide variety of, of prior simulations that have, uh, competition as being a central part of that. And here there are some interesting problems, and certainly I reflect on Uh, what is being done in parallel with regards to genetic programming. There's a whole school of theory and genetic programming associated with um, simulated islands and almost uh, um, kind of special or cultural tribes that exist when genetic programming algorithms are are isolated. And I think this is a beautiful lead into uh, the potential of artificial life simulations in this regard. So in terms of competition, um, if you have the same kind of creature and you just isolate them in different areas, you have potential of having very different kinds of creatures fundamentally that have just been perturbed either through their genetics or through their uh, community evolution or whatever is going on in the environment that they share. I mean, this is a fascinating idea. If you can imagine that you have a, a simulated agent and you have a thousand of them and you divide them into you know, 10 separate islands with roughly 100 on each of the islands and you leave them for, you know, however many simulated years, you get completely different uh, cultures, you get completely different means of interrelating and probably there is some component of the environment in which they are um, coexisting, which, you know, leads into what they are. I mean, this is a central uh, interest or... um, hypothesis with regards to the development of noble Ape but fundamentally what came out of the environment uh, related very closely to the, the societies that would evolve amongst the noble Apes and I think this exists in other simulations as well it's a fascinating idea and certainly if this is triggering anything in the in the folks listening in or the folks who are interested in uh, writing their own simulations I think this is certainly one to try We have a guest in the chat room. If the guest would like to contribute a question, I will uh, certainly diverge my model towards that. Also, if the guest would like to participate, we have a call-in number, 646-200-0640. It's a U.S. number, so you can either participate through the chat or you can call the number in order to participate. So I was talking about um, the competition within the environment, um, particularly with regards to the notion that um, if you had the same kind of species or the same kind of simulated agents through separation, you could get a certain degree of competition. You don't obviously need to separate the same agents in order to get active competition. I mean, the island example is a beautiful one with regards to there actually being internal competition on the island itself. I mean, I think that is a fascinating uh, potential for an artificial life simulation. Certainly I enjoy those aspects of noble eight, that when you have a a group of the noble eights that congregate on an island, what uh, tends to happen is some kind of hierarchical dominance that is either based on age or a wide variety of factors. But I mean, if you're looking to Create an artificial life simulation that could be a potential end for you. The other thing to talk about is uh, different kinds of creatures. I mean, I think this is the interesting thing that certainly I carry on from what I do with Noble Ape is that there are so many different simulated biological species in the Noble Ape environment. And I think if you were creating a, a chaotic artificial life simulation, you would look to have uh, different kinds of creatures as well. And this is an interesting problem because it begs the question whether the different kinds of creatures have uh, either evolved from a a single source or uh, whether they are fundamentally different. And if they are fundamentally different, if they have different simulation metrics, the example I like to use in Noble Ape is the size of the cognitive simulation of the various creatures. So, you know, you have some... um, Perhaps artificial imposed scale associated with uh, intelligence, with perhaps the apes on top, followed by the cats, followed by you know smaller creatures, birds, these kind of things that all use fundamentally the same uh, the same uh, cognitive simulation, but just smaller and smaller brain sizes fundamentally, and how this changes the way these species interact is. Uh, very interesting but I mean there's also potential here and this goes back to the interesting uh, extended phenotype discussion for almost a kind of uh, intelligent agent versus scripted agent alternative this is a an interesting problem almost a a, a paradoxical dichotomy that can exist within uh, artificial life simulations that you know perhaps there are a series of scripted agents and then there are active participants it's almost like the Truman show fundamentally in that regard. That uh, you know, maybe you should start with all scripted agents bar one and then move it progressively to, you know, more and more intelligent agents altogether. This was always the problem with Noble Ape in terms of the Adam and Eve ape. The concept that, um, no matter where you started the Noble Ape simulation, you would have to either have a situation where there were um, maybe half a dozen baby apes that mysteriously watched up in the environment and then started evolving based on the fact that they had an ability to survive for a certain length of time in order to create a culture and environment, you know, versus the problems that, um, you know, would come out of, of having a infant ape-like creatures in a relatively high predatorial environment, or at least certainly one that wasn't necessarily suited for this kind of, uh, you know, this kind of setting. So it's an interesting problem when you create these kind of simulations. I mean, how do you start this setting? So if we look at this kind of dreaded dichotomy where you have a situation where you kind of ease intelligence into the simulation by uh, starting off with all scripted bar one and then progressively moving down, it begs the question whether you can have a kind of always... um, a group of agents in the simulation which are fundamentally scripted. This was certainly the solution that I came up with to a certain extent in Noble Ape. I mean the thing about the biological simulation in Noble Ape is it's completely independent of scripting. It's to do with Uh, properties of the landforms and these kind of things but it is still fundamentally um, deterministic in some regard although there are certain chaotic elements the movements of certain creatures are fundamentally deterministic and I don't think it really hurts the noble ape simulation but it's certainly something to consider when you create your own simulations and particularly if you move beyond the kind of uh, evolving movement style simulations if you're looking to start with a a presupposition that you have moving agents that have certain limbs and certain interactions and you know maybe there's the potential for more limbs less limbs these kind of things but still the kind of agents that they interact with in the environment there's a potential there for scripted agents and i think that's an interesting problem with regards to these kind of simulations so this still returns to the fundamental question how do how do i create such a simulation, and really, what I've done so far is talked very much about kind of high-level concepts, uh, high-level philosophical concepts associated with creating these kind of simulations, and avoided the nuts and bolts, the, the sheer practicality of what one actually writes in kind of coding terms. And I think the the real answer here is that the simulation needs to have more than one dimension, and here. It's obviously one dimension plus time, but for these kind of um, dynamic evolving simulations, ideally they need to be set in at least two dimensions and preferably three or even potentially four. Now, Tierra and these kind of set of simulation examples in terms of one dimensional or at least memory expanding simulations, they, you know, they did well for their time and certainly I think there is potential even for um, bacterial simulations and grid-based simulations to move in a completely different direction towards what I'm talking about here. But if you're starting just writing an artificial life simulation and you're looking to do something interesting with the environment that you create, you probably should start with at least two dimensions. And if you want to do things like terrain and things like that, you can kind of spoof how the the terrain exists in a two-dimensional simulation. You don't always need to have um, you know a third or a second and a half dimension in terms of the the height values of the land and these kind of things so don 't be too overly concerned with regards to your own mathematical or programming knowledge. Uh, it certainly won 't be a limiting factor when you create this kind of simulation. but the other thing that i 've been talking about somewhat implicitly is how you actually create um, these ideas of intelligence, how you create the Um, aspects of even uh, genetics, the notions of evolution and genetic algorithms and how this all fits together um, in terms of what a simulation looks like. And I think the thing I return to and it isn't just because I uh, started my philosophical education with uh, Plato, where actually honestly I probably started with Bob Dylan but that's another story. But if you start exploring dualism you start to realize that in order to write And this comes through in even Gerald Jung's experimentation with Darwin at home. But in order to write an interesting artificial life simulation, you need to have two simulations running in parallel. And this is what's really quite fascinating with regards to developing artificial life, that uh, it isn't just a matter of creating a simulated environment and then setting out these agents. The agents themselves have... uh, A wide variety of kind of internal components which make them uh, a simulation in and of themselves so how does this dualism apply? It's things like simulated perception, it's the idea of the dual of black brain and here I think beautifully of Polyworld, I mean Polyworld's a great example of this, there's a uh, you know relatively rich external world that the sea monkeys live in and yet they have a very detailed and almost hardwired internal neural network system um, that Larry Yager talks about how much time he spent in all these kind of weightings in the neural network and these kind of things and this is an important secondary simulation so when you create an artificialized simulation, don't think of it purely as creating an environment component and seeing what happens through this environment. You are probably going to have to create some quite interesting representation. Um now even, you know, even things with regards to, you know, simulated and evolving movement, obviously the Genetics and these kind of representations represent a, a different domain of simulation. So I think this idea of dualism, potentially even more than just two um, simulated components that go into an artificialized simulation, is fascinating. And it really is the the kind of secret source with regards to developing an artificial life simulation that isn't often explicitly talked about. But I think I probably should emphasise in the criteria of writing these kind of simulations. When you start thinking about uh, this kind of dualism, you end up with an interesting problem that what you see in the um, the you know if you're simulating a landscape, if you're simulating weather, if you're simulating uh, you know various biological processes, and then you simulating intelligence and you're simulating ways of coping with all these kind of things and you're simulating genetic evolution and you're doing all these kind of things in parallel, you start to realize that there is, in fact, a subset of the mathematics that you need to use, and this is fundamentally what I return to in, in Dick Gordon's book, that if you can use mathematics that is applicable to all areas, you'll probably get slightly faster uh, results than if you use a different method of modeling. Uh, for example, you know various biological processes or simulated agents versus... Um, you know, internal perception or these kind of things. And this was a fascinating problem in Noble Age. It was something I spent many years, in fact, contemplating, particularly with regards to the parallels between the weather simulation and the cognitive simulation. And this is something that still leaves me scratching my head. The cognitive simulation was heavily optimised by Apple originally and then Intel. We have a caller on the line. I I wanted to phone in. Hi, how's it going? I'm, I'm
1: doing fine. I just wanted to say, hey,
0: hey
1: uh, Dom. Dom Barbell, uh, it's good, good to talk to you. Uh, I, I think you're all doing really exciting work. You know, that's, uh, that's why I called.
0: Terrific. Mm-hmm. Do you have a particular interest in artificial life? I've worked with, like, Avita
1: for a long time. I think it was with for a long time. and I've got genomes that got shorter and shorter. Uh, I've written some of my own stuff. I think all the algorithms involved are really good just as a search for solutions you know I want to see earth physics in these simulators and get the things that are making technology as soon as possible that so we can copy technology we can copy
0: yes I think there are so many uh, potential directions in terms of your own use of avita um I mean what kind of what kind of abstract things did you did you build from us and how did you you know add to a, a, Vita as, a as a project
1: you know i haven't I haven't been like hacking on avita you know just with the configs like uh, I would have them I'd have them add all the children to just the end of a line, and then it would wrap at the end of the screen and uh, start overwriting the the oldest organisms. So it turned into kind of a race, but I, I would have the insertion uh, the insertion frequencies way up and take out all the deletions I could. I could get away with hoping that I would see uh, some kind of some kind of adaptive behaviors evolve in longer genomes, but I don't believe I did. All the ones that I've uh, that I've backed up were Shorter and shorter, which I seemed impressed with at first, and I consider this kind of a pathology, really, of uh, maybe a few of the models, the genetic models that are available. Uh, I've been working with critters, where they're just uh, big brains, uh, neuron and synapse organizations. I don't know if there is a genome in those critters, but they have uh, large, large brain architectures which are copied and mutated uh, among the uh, among the children. And these things have to navigate in a world not unlike Larry Yeager's polyworld, uh, which I, I have been. Has been working with it a little bit. I'm thinking about voxels, voxels to give them kind of a height map there, to move around on. But uh, then they would need more uh, more dimensions of freedom for the camera, obviously, if I was going to calculate the angle they're at on a slope.
0: Certainly. It
1: gets uh, it. Gets, uh, 3D map has never been my my strong suit here, but uh, but I, you know, I have a lot of lately
0: a vision. Yes, I think in terms of combining these simulations, I mean, I've been in, um, aside from talking to Larry Yeager, I've been in extensive correspondence with him in terms of uh, teaming some of the ideas in Novel eight, particularly with regards to terrain mapping, vision, uh, biology, weather simulations, all these components into, into Polyworld. I think the the beauty of what we're doing with biota is it brings simulators together to have these kind of discussions. I mean, you make a very interesting point with regards to neural mapping ultimately being some kind of genetics as well. And I think this is something that, uh, you know, Larry Yate worked on um, in, in Polyworld in particular. What would you like to see in future artificial life simulations? Well, I, I
1: think, and I I haven't used PolyWorld yet, but I think I think the brains in that must be uh, extrapolated from the genes, sort of procedurally generated, which kind of means the uh, the total brain space is is, uh, is less than higher. On the other hand, a brute force search might not might not be ideal either, since the, uh, since the brains are fine extrapolated from from a genetic code. You know, me, I, I'd rather uh. Uh, I, th- I think that what we should want really be doing is specifying more rigid parameters for these models. Um, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of like crowd simulations, et cetera, where we have uh, fairly narrow fields that we try to uh, evolve the contents of uh, just for specific types of, uh, types of behavior, this sort of thing.
0: Certainly, I mean, that's I what I've, I've written on recently. I think the idea of um, creating competitive parameters between artificial life simulations is critical. And I think um, certainly... Uh, Polyworld and Aveda and all these kind of things all, all lend themselves to uh, competitive parameters. But, I mean, there is also a problem in terms of the diversity of artificial life solutions currently. Um, I'm assuming, being a frequent listener, you've heard, to, you've heard Bruce Damer's discussion of the Evo grid. What's your own thinking with regards to that?
1: Well, I think that's very exciting. This kind of work uh, obviously lends itself to, to distributed computing. Uh uh, strongly, strongly distributable if it can be worked out so that we can have a uh, project uh, the kind of CPU hours they're turning over on BOINC right now I mean every day they produce uh, 100 CPU years on some of those projects it's just unthinkable, I know I know. there's a project there now with a guy who just did a 50 billion, 50 billion generation run on some kind, of a, uh, some kind of a machine code soup 50 billion generations, you know that's terrific so there has to be a uh, there has to be something worth seeing that uh, scientists will want to see. If we can, if we can get something like that together, you know, a one-two year run would uh, would be worth much, much more than
0: that. Many
1: hundreds, thousands of years.
0: Certainly. So, do you think there's a, a problem with regards to uh, language or basic fundamentals in terms of these artificial life simulations coming together? Do you think it's something that you know, the intellectual contributors uh, need to have a kind of meeting of minds and work out standards. I mean, this is the fundamental problem with regards to the EVO grid. I mean, what's your own thinking on that?
1: Obviously, if, if, uh, if there's any way, you know, that, uh, that it can be split up into many applications so that, uh, so that you can activate various, really, uh, various fields, uh, fields of interest, among the people who download these screensavers and are participating, you know, so they have their fish, or their walkers, or climbers, or, or whatever they want to have, and of course you have these structures being exchanged if possible. Uh, that that seems to me seems to me to be the uh, you know the really compelling aspect of this model, is where we can have sort of novelty evolved in, in one model, uh, switch over to another model where perhaps it, it would not have evolved there. Um, that this could really kind of injection of novelty the possibility for uh, evolution through traversal I think could remove some of the uh, some dependcies some models over extended runs to stop at points where they kind of require you to write out write out your uh, g- genetic data at that point and uh, change change the parameters in order to bootstrap the next the next phase in the development of the world really uh, really a problem I, I've seen again and again if I had some kind of an overseer function that was just uh, and knew everything I did and, and changed the parameters for me. You know, there would be no reason to, uh, to to attend these runs. But again, if uh, if these things just migrated when they hit a certain merit, or uh, or, or literally the edges of the world, and uh, and things were falling in from from the edges, and there would be uh, selection pressures and and so on and so forth, and just a lot of compost there as well, something you can really uh, begin to visualize and sort of go for a long time. But uh, but an in, an inspiration, you know. I I I want to uh, I want to see parts of it running right away, even just simple uh, you ball programs to write strings or uh, draw pictures or anything, and then and then get it out there, you know. Some simple uh, even do it on peer to peer. A project like this could be done peer to peer. It's just a matter of Talking
0: protocols almost. The ongoing discussion is the, the people that think that humans are going to be the critical part of the kind of selection pressure on this kind of um, simulation. I mean, you speak with such passion in terms of your own background. How did you come to artificial life?
1: I, I don't remember. You know, when it appeared on my radar, I just realized, I suppose, in a great flash one day that uh, that it could be done. I, I probably, uh, God, I remember seeing a, a blackjack program that uh, learned to play against in Java at one point, you know, and, uh, the idea that, that you can turn, you can turn cycle simulation time into, uh, novel forms, is, uh, something, something that's occupied more and more of my, uh, my mind space. mind space lately. It's a, uh, is a, the potential for psychedelia is immense. You get to a point where, you get to a point where the rate of, uh, I mean, just in terms of cycles per second, you should be able to get to a point where the rate of change on, on, uh, simulated world, is so rapid and so bizarre that watching it is a psychedelic experience. And from there, it's a, uh, it's a matter of, you know, a, a skip and a, and a jump to uh, where the progress of man is such that uh, trying to understand anything <laughs> it is, is like, indeed, dripping on a, on a drug of some kind.
0: Yeah, no, certainly there's a strong overlap with this, and um, I mean through the obviously there's no you know necessity to this kind of connection in the biotech community, but obviously through um, Bruce Damer's own connections, there's a, a, a strong link with the psychedelic community with regards to all these kind of narratives although um we touched on it with a few things with the ideas of the singularity and also uh other discussions associated with terence mckenna and uh, these kind of things also obviously the the spiders on drugs discussion recently
1: hawkins is working with biomorphs uh, frogs and trees and things like this but you know leary went on about digital media in a way which was not a great more uh, great deal more grocky of the the reality of the thing and the times we find ourselves in Say McLuhan who also did.
0: But here's the fascinating Uh, thing with regards to Leary. If you look at his one of his early speeches, I actually used to have this queued up in my biosolide sounds, but I don't currently. He was in contact with Dawkins' uh, primary teacher and instigator. They lived in a similar um, part of New York and were in constant communication. So the link between Leary and Dawkins is actually far intellectually stronger than one may uh pick up and if you listen to early leary and in, even later leary there is a strong narrative with regards to uh fundamental memetics and he actually got it earlier than dawkins so it's an interesting connection
1: no ab- absolutely there's there's a lot to be done still in this field it's kind of a frontier i think it's exciting i i wish i could do uh i wish i could do more than i'm doing right now, I have to get I have to get some workstations together, just kind of a development environment, and sort of see what happens because I, I know there's a, still, still new science there. I wish we could have uh, these fringy fields at, at the sort of edges of things. Uh, what happened to Year of A-Life? Ken Stoffer, yeah. Evolve 4.0, does anyone... I remember he did about 320 days
0: of the Year of A-Life. Yeah, I keep in an occasional day. contact with Ken, and I don't have a clear indication what happened to that project uh, the fact that it's still um it's still semi active i mean certainly um a number of us have been approached by um various people in terms of running our simulations for extended periods and seeing what comes out of that. I think we all would like to do something like that and I mean I know ken is a is a frequent listener to this podcast, so he can get back in contact and let us all know how the the year of a life went. Um, but it was a very interesting project and I think what Ken started with fundamentally was very, very simple which meant that there could be a kind of greater interest of emergence in a relatively short period of time which meant that even the longer periods that he simulated, there was a, a greater interest of complexity. I also remember um, Tierra, similar discussion associated with that um, probably maybe even 10 years ago now where Tom Ray ran it for an extended period of time. Now, I appreciate we we have a diversity of listeners that um, tune into to Biota Live and you seem to be someone who would be uh, well utilized in kind of instigating or participating in a number of projects that we talk about frequently. How can... How can people get in contact with you?
1: Uh, it's, it's not difficult to get in contact with me. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm based in, in Toronto, and I'm on IRC all the time on Freenode and, and Pound AI. Uh, I'm Brillanon on there after my email address. Uh, so you, you can, in fact, see me there, on or PyGuy for Python. Sometimes Flamute on Freenode, sometimes. Sometimes, and all you have to do, you know, is uh, is ask me about anything.
0: So in terms of the topic of this evening's discussion with regards to how to create artificial intelligence from artificial life, this is obviously something that you have a, a passion towards. Would you like to talk on this evening's topic?
1: I think it's a strong, I think it's a strong approach. You know, I, I really think that, uh, for instance, you could use genetic algorithms to generate uh, training data, training regimes, uh, educational procedures for AI that otherwise we might not be able to make on our own bring them up to, up to, uh, up to par. On the other hand, just the, uh, what you think of as the bottom-up approach to, uh, A.I., where you, where you evolve it by selection pressure in an in environment where, uh, where tribal circuits form and then, uh, go on up, up the ladder for various skills and whatnot, is incredibly compelling because then you can, uh, theoretically just select a mind out of a, out of a, you know, what equates to real civilization. At that point, you have an electronic slave pool. And it really seems like a whole different, uh, a whole different issue. You know, people classically think of it as AI, which would be something that is like implemented, maybe stamped with a childhood, comes that way. And non-human intelligence, these things would be more like us than a mind uh, that was designed. Uh, so, the, so the ethical question is large too, of course, as well. It, it's not clear. I don't, I don't believe we'll get, uh, we'll get intelligent natural language processing out know, of some kind of an evolutionary procedure before it's already really competent by the by convergence of uh, various narrow AI fields but uh, it's still something I very much
0: am uh, trying to... Yes, I mean I think certainly it, you beg you two questions there but I think the obvious one is that whatever comes out of an artificial life intelligence would be so far removed from what exists in contemporary artificial intelligence in terms of Uh, paradigms and schemes and, uh, phenomenalism and embodiment and all this kind of stuff. It would be so far removed from that. And I think there's an interesting problem in contemporary genetic programming. Uh, where solutions of intelligence can come out of genetic programming which are so completely abstract that we may not even have the means to understand that they're intelligence. But that's the second part of the question that you're begging in terms of this idea that the intelligence that comes out of an life system would be human-esque or something that we could relate to. I mean, my own sense with regards to this is that we could end up within or we may already have intelligence that is so far removed from our own means of understanding intelligence that we still keep kind of scratching our heads with regards to these kind of problems i mean what's your own thinking on that
1: there'd appear to be an intelligence operating in these systems i mean trends that that appear and uh here and disappear in the population as, as reactions and trends that are popping up in other populations or changes in the environment and this kind of thing, but what we don't see is a lot of these converting into long-term stable adaptations, a um, new organ or, or new behavior. Uh, I, I think a lot of the time these creatures have to be just much larger, they have to be much larger and occupy uh, more space and ram and on the disk so that there's more capacity for any one of them to, to embody intelligent behavior. On the other hand, you know, if it could be procedurally generated from a very small genome, if there's some very small code that will produce intelligence, then, then, then even if there's like only one, you know, that is a thousand bytes long, it will produce an intelligent mind. That's 0.1% of the uh, 0.1% of the thousand-byte state space. That's nothing. It would take no time to find if you had a test for intelligence to imply that you know all, all the programs of that uh at length. Now, I don't know if there is an intelligent 1,000 byte program, but it is still only 0001 percent of uh, of a megabyte, you know, of of uh, 100K. So, so very much on the horizon. Like, how, how big is it? There's the smallest intelligent program we can find by a by a random walk. You know, how big? The, I mean, the distributed.net is, has been going on worse odds than that for over a decade. Worse odds than I can imagine.
0: So i mean this return i 'm not sure if you heard the the start of um, of this evening 's uh, <laughs> monologue, but my own definition with regards to intelligence is that it 's on a continuum and, and very heavily associated with survival in fact, ultimately, intelligence is a just an adaptive process in order to survive and if you use this metric with regards to survival and associate it with intelligence, uh, a lot of the uh, glamour or may I say uh, wrongheadedness associated with what we typically characterise intelligence as being is removed and I think certainly if you look at um, a wide variety of systems which uh, exist and are observed and have an ability to survive independent of human maintenance I think this is the the interesting question with regards to intelligence is what is, what is slightly more than persisting sufficient to actually, um, you know, merit intelligence for this metric? I mean, what's your own thinking in terms of describing intelligence purely as a means of survival?
1: Well, that's the thing, right, is, is uh, having, kind of a, having a fitness function that we can really sympathize with. We need to find X amount of food and breed in a certain amount of time is a really good way for us in watching them to expect to see behaviors that uh, we would recognize as intelligent. It's good because it's not abstract. But again, I would argue that maybe if we can, if we can implement behaviors, even if you have machine code creatures, right? So some, some of these models have creatures that are evaluating machine code in order to move around, in, 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 which, case, in which case these things can, uh, can have certain behaviors, sorry, evolved in, in isolation, sort of in uh, arena situations. Um, turning corners, moving around one another, uh, understanding that food is nearby, this kind of thing. And uh, we have we can really have these components assembled, uh, assemble piecework into uh, in, into a system which which makes calls to so them. This is something seeable. This is something seeable. I, I'll, I'll tell you. I've uh, I'll tell you one thing I've thought about just as far as evaluating uh, an assembly code uh, script goes, in order to uh, an organism. Uh, if you had uh, if you had some kind of a uh, kind of a table, all right, because uh, you have the you have the uh, the, uh, the the esoteric programming language brain brainfuck and it has eight instructions, and uh, two of these are going to move the data pointer left or right. Well, if you can move it up or down as well, then now you have uh, four four faces on this thing. You can have uh, visual data coming in on uh, on one of them or uh, or anything anything at that point and uh and moving moving in towards anyway i remember looking at uh i remember looking at no lake a few years ago and each of this cube uh that that that's uh, that's your program song which is I, I read it conveys uh, uh information about the landscape what they're sensing and so on it serves as a kind of memory and uh and I thought if you just have this this cube where these things are uh, these signals from the outside are navigating inwards and kind of averaging, blurring, through some, like, fire demo effect or something like this. And then these these machine language things are just moving a pointer around in two or three dimensions and reading and writing. And then at one at one edge, you know, you have a uh, motor effector wall where the pixel they write to forms a certain action. And then those signals, <laughs> right there, are you drifting inwards? they also have a memory of that? They could access by navigating towards the center of the cube. I thought, uh, and then just, yeah, let these things move this data pointer around, do reads and writes at very low cost. Maybe, maybe you'd see some kind of general intelligence come out of that. I mean, it should develop uh, routines for doing kind of uh, searches and shapes, and gestures in this, uh, in this box, seeking it. <laughs> you know, like, it's really hard to imagine because you would be talking about long, long machine code, uh, long, long machine code genomes, specifying uh, actions that are mostly internal, operating on uh, just a box, which contains all the data they have about the universe and size. Um, you just need far, far more, far more cycles than are available. Honestly, um, honestly this is uh, an, an idea I, I, I'm sure I got from Noble Ape. Uh, so I'm it, it
0: certainly sounds idea. like a, a Noble Ape idea. And I mean, certainly when you called, I was oh, discussing the oh, idea oh. that um, all the artificialized simulations we've discussed so far have had a, a very strong internal, external. Um, simulation space, and I think what you've touched on is is just the importance of this in some regard in the artificial life um, simulations that are created. So you've given
1: some background to help much with sensorium, right? Like what, what you're talking about is almost a the Cartesian theater in this case, just really a thing for them to be within in terms of a, a perceptual sphere, even a perceptual cognitive sphere. Obviously, there could be scratch space in there. They wouldn't need any kind of stacks or registers.
0: You, you mentioned um, Ken Stelfer's work. I mean, this is ultimately uh, what he does with k I can't remember whether I actually put out this section of my chat with John Klein uh, a couple of years ago now, but he talked about an early Graytham meeting where they had been tinkering and written a simulation to do just what you're describing, having run it for about three hours they ended up with some machine code that had survived that was very very obscure but had managed to kind of conquer the simulation space and I think what you're describing is is exactly that in some regard but within a kind of internal cognitive simulation I mean in writing down the notes this evening's show it occurred to me that we could move even past dualism to where there could be uh, multiple layers of kind of simulation space that were critical I mean ultimately this is what you do with regards to some kind of uh, um, intelligence metric and some kind of genetic uh, genotype phenotype metric. I mean, this is what more complicated artificial life simulations seem to be all about.
1: Things like core wars. But all the codes are deeply entrenched. There's no way can write to other codes. Only in the most tortuous manner can these creatures affect their environment or indeed the creatures around them in any way whatsoever. But it still um, seems to me like a, uh, a very, very rich form of embodiment. And right now I'm really rooting for a uh, for richer embodiment for these organisms. I think that's lacking, that it would give them a certain life. This uh, happens by magic, but there are a number of solutions. I know, uh, I know Delta Force had, had polygonal characters on a uh, uh, voxel landscape, and honestly that looked beautiful.
0: So in terms of uh, the, the kind of broader narrative with these biota live podcast in terms of getting the message of artificial life out i mean you seem to be personally very receptive to this but in your own thinking have you thought that uh, does this need to be almost like some kind of internalized druidic cult that uh, a few folk you know converse on on a semi-regular basis or do you think it needs to become part of popular consciousness and how do you think we should do that
1: oh you know i, re- I really think that uh... I really think that there are a number of directions to go from here and that kind of the uh, kind of the technology speaks for for itself uh, I don't think we've uh, visualized all the applications I've uh, I've thought about evil grid deep as maybe being one of the uh, one of the lead-in applications for nano fabricators. it's uh, almost hard to imagine applications that would demand their uh, production enough otherwise but uh, obviously these all these things get the, the, use, the use for these things become more apparent as, as we approach uh, times that will demand them and indeed enable them enable them more entirely uh, this is uh, still, still a very exciting time to be alive
0: that's, I agree uh, I agree that's actually going to be our, our topic um, tomorrow for a- American Thanksgiving
1: I all 2600 for a little while in New Toronto uh, in New Year a few years I think we're starting a, a great thumb meeting if I can I've talked to a few people about this I know that would be a good way to sort of uh, pool pool the the mind share as well. So whatever, whatever else we can do. In terms of, I mean, if I could get an industrial space or something, you know, like what the loft had in Boston, to just kind of set up a bunch of machines in. And I mean, I wouldn't have to worry about the power or whatever. Just somewhere with good power. Right now, this seems to be a hot a hot button topic. Certainly.
0: I mean, I think if you look at the if you look at the biota community in in Canada. There is, a, there are a number, I mean, obviously, you, you have a number of people, Dave Kerr, Dick Gordon, a number of participants who, have, Jeffrey Ventrella, spent a long period of time in Canada. There are folks in Montreal who, I think, have a, a space that would be ideally suited for this. So, I mean, I think in terms of Canadian biotons, there there is a good crop for you to communicate with.
1: No, it's true. Canadians have always been sort of an unknown quantity, but it's not so bad, you know. I've, I've attended a few conventions in the States, and I felt like... I felt like I understood. So I'm not too scared about uh,
0: missionary work. I hear what you're saying. So, I mean, in terms of the narrative that you've described, in terms of the potential and also the aspects of psychedelic crossover, I mean, obviously Dave Kerr um, has has a long-term interest with regards to all these kind of things, and he sounds like someone you could... uh, jam with the extended links with regards to all these aspects I think you know there are a number of folk in Canada who are, are like minded with regards to their passions of artificial life and also the potential for it to go in the wide variety of directions that need you know visionary minds such as yourself thinking over long periods of time with regards to these kind of issues what kind of topics would you like to hear covered in future biota lives
1: I don't know you know you just you, you cover the spectrum kind of, of the, all the time so it's it's hard to say, you know, if if I think you're missing anything. It's, it's 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 been for me just kind of a feel to to go in and out of during uh during span of hard work and it's always always comforting to me to know that uh, there are people still thinking about it. Seem to, the field seems to come and go before. Well, what you really have to do, I think, is at least pull together so that there's a community out there sometimes that, that people can go to for the state of the art, but they aren't reinventing the wheel over and over again, and uh, sort of having false starts. really want uh, more patches, more contributions to, uh, so I'm going to, uh, I'm going to fork going to Critterding, make a special coffee where everything that dies as a secondary fitness function applied. to score based on its behaviors in life. So, in fact, the chance of being reincarnated is actually really, really useful for doing fast, high frame rate runs. I think it will help, this kind of thing. This kind of thing, it took nothing, you know, it took nothing. It's a uh, 100 lines.
0: It's an interesting problem with regards to the issue of reinventing the wheel and also the the fundamental nature of the kind of hobbyist artificial life community. I mean, if you talk to a number of folks, even occasionally myself, included the aspects of reinventing the wheel as in large part part of the fun you know the the nature of kind of making a better wheel in some regard or, or making improvements to the wheel seems to be a kind of recurring narrative and I think it's fundamentally the nature of the wonder kind of hobbyist mentality that a number of artificial life developers share what's your own thinking with regards to this problem of in some sense needing to reinvent the wheel and also needing to build on from that
1: i spent so much time working in a vacuum, you know. It's frustrating. I mean, I've been aware of core wars for years and years, but the idea of evolving these programs, uh, <laughs> they occurred to me. I found out there was someone doing that with red code at one point, but it's difficult to know if uh, this kind of work is going anywhere. Every now and then I'll go to YouTube, I'll go to Google Video. And I'll just look up artificial life and see if there's any runs that people have put in, like uh, someone with a new PC and a copy of Fram's 6 Theater. has done like a million generations or something like this. It might be really worth seeing. You know, obviously uh, obviously these emergent behaviors in uh, the simulated worlds are, are a totally novel totally novel phenomena. It's, I think, undervalued. I don't know if I want to say that, but, uh, but definitely, I mean, it's all going somewhere quite uh, quite frightening. The polygon counts are way up, and, uh, you know, they can evolve flora and fauna and, you know, artistic properties for games, you know. These generation of these things automatically, production quality. It will be uh, really a really different world.
0: Certainly, and this returns to the idea that humans are the, the fundamental selection pressure of artificial life. I think you've, you've raised a number of really interesting Points this evening, and certainly, I, I feel my own, you know, responsibilities with regards to kind of keeping a number of these narratives alive through um, future biota podcasts. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate you speaking to me, Tom. What I'm actually saying is, I'm encouraging you to call in and participate in future biota lives and instigate other folks in the community with regards to your particular observations. I mean, this is fundamentally the purpose of biota live: is to have people such as yourself call in and interact with, uh, with artificial life developers.
1: No, a- absolutely. You know, people have, people have got to know. But, uh, I'm not afraid to do that. I've had some good conversations on bioticons, certainly. I've acquired some insights that way already, just in the little time I've spent on that list. So I'm, I'm, happy, to, uh, I'm happy to give back anything I can. All right, well, well thanks again. I'm, I'm going to go, I guess. I'll go and uh, I'll hear the rest of the show on my computer.
0: Terrific. Well, thank you very much for calling in, and you're, you're exactly the reason that I'm uh, doing these extended shows over the Thanksgiving period to give opportunity to, to folks such as yourself to call in and, and provide insight, and I think you've, you provide a lot of food for thought for the other folks listening in, and I'd like to thank you again for calling.
1: It, uh, you got so many shows in so
0: few days, I thought it was a good chance to just... <laughs> Yes, That's I'm looking forward to uh, to a lot of contribution and you set it off in a wonderful way. Thank you very much. So, that was an interesting caller and this is exactly the reason that I'm... Uh doing these uh, biota lives currently in order to get this kind of productive feedback. Where was I in my discussion? I think I was talking about the relative complexity associated with creating these simulation environments and in fact that they were simulations within simulations. This raises a very interesting point which uh, the caller also raised, this idea that the stuff that Dick Gordon was initially talking about associated with the origins of artificial life, this fundamental idea that we need to have components for from which can come artificial life. The same is true with regards to uh, having components which can evolve to produce ideas of intelligence in terms of survival. So in order to create this kind of long-term evolving system, the question is really still out there. Do we need to develop new methods of simulation or do the existing methods of simulation work? And I think certainly the topics that we've discussed tonight with regards to chaos and complexity and all these things come together in a beautiful way to to start to instigate. I mean, ultimately, I'm not trying to provide too many answers with regards to this. Uh, I'm just trying to provide some degree of instigation for folks such as uh, the the caller who called in and other folks that are listening in to potentially start their own artificial life simulations or perhaps not necessarily reinvent the wheel, perhaps instigate existing artificial life simulators to move their uh, projects in the right direction. The final part that I wanted to make was the fact that all this comes back to code. This comes back to source code and ideas that need to be written in terms of programming. You need to take the philosophy, take the insight, take the discussion, and actually write that down in code. And the standard open source logic has been that the code is written somewhere else, and you just need to take and integrate the code, and this was some part of the discussion associated with Reinventing the wheel, but another topic that we 're going to discuss in this extended series is uh, relates to what a curriculum of artificial life should be, what kind of education do you need to have before you start writing artificial life uh, simulations and I think in this context i'd like to put out my own bias that I think um, whilst an artificial life curriculum can be created it shouldn 't presuppose the need for any formal kind of education before you start writing artificial life simulations. I associate this with um, childhood learning. I mean, this is something that I've talked about. My NYU talk in 2000 was concluded with discussions associated with childhood education, and I think this returns to the idea of kind of tinkering, experimenting, you know, breaking, re-gluing, rejecting, accepting, and then doing a lot of additional and sometimes tangential reading to try and instigate new directions. I don't think a lot of the skill set that can be discussed with regards to creating an artificial life simulation can necessarily be learnt. I think a large part of it is more to do with instigation and just general interest basically in terms of uh, you know constantly in some sense reinventing the wheel but realistically looking at aspects of life that you are looking to simulate and a sufficiently detailed, complex, chaotic, sometimes competing environment in order to Create an, an evolving system, or at least a system that continues to evolve far beyond uh, the scope that one would originally assume a kind of uh, a super emergence, which is ultimately the goal of, of every artificial life simulator, I, I would probably guess. You know, there may be some exceptions. Returning to this idea of open source, I think the problems associated with existing open source applications which aren't specifically tailored to artificial life deals with this issue of processing complexity, some understanding of how you take the Environment potentially so many different error conditions you don 't want a situation where you know the the algorithms that you are using uh, do not adapt well or at least play well with the kind of environments that you can be uh, putting your artificial life simulated agents in and I think this is fundamentally a problem with regards to using existing open source solutions in terms of uh, artificial life simulation. It begs the question, where would you find the right kind of open-source solutions? Well, I think artificial life simulators have traditionally created something along that line. I've certainly recently been spending a lot of time tinkering in polyworlds, hopefully for a future collaboration per the discussion with the caller. I think there are a number of uh, possibilities here. Um, in terms of the existing open-source artificial life uh, community. However, for example, if you take um, existing neural network applications and try to tailor them to artificial life simulation, it will take a lot of extra work, well, maybe some extra work. I think this is large part due to the narrative associated with Larry Yeager, and I do hope that Larry will call into one of the shows in this cycle because he offers a lot of uh, a lot of insight with regards to this kind of tuning also. Folks will remember the discussion with Steve Grant similarly, uh, the kind of skills required in tuning a neural network in order to tailor it perfectly to artificial life-related applications. So if I'm going to conclude this show a little bit early, I think the trick really in creating these kind of simulations is to seek out like-minded folk and communicate, which is ultimately what has happened so wonderfully with regards to this show. I think the ability to have uh, discussions with existing artificial light simulators that can kind of teach you or at least instigate directions that you can take. And, you know, we're all relatively friendly folk in terms of communication. And also, I think, and if you know, if we have needs or people or, um, you know, existing things that uh, folks that have a certain degree of insight can work on, I mean, this is ultimately also a productive thing. So really, I, I would encourage you, if you're thinking of starting an artificial life simulation to get involved with the Biota Conversations mailing list, to become a part of the uh, community, to float ideas. We certainly accept correspondence from anyone, people who have amazing and uh, uh, potentially quite extreme simulation ideas. I mean, we're more than happy to hear from you in the Biota Conversations mailing list. In order to find that mailing list, biota.org Click on the uh, mailing list links at the top of the uh, front page, and that will show you the Biota Conversations mailing list. And there's always quite a bit of traffic going through about a a variety of topics, obviously stuff we discuss on Biota Live and other topics um, relating to, to general artificial life discussion, associated news stories, various stories that would be applicable in some regard to artificial life developers. Similarly, I also want to give a shout out to the Great Thumb blog. It's also a very useful place to go. G-R-E-Y-T-H-U-M-B dot org slash uh, blog. Great place to go for news articles, additional instigation, this kind of stuff if you're looking to create these kind of simulations. So this has been the first of the uh, extended biota live recording sessions over this period. I'm not sure when this episode is going to air specifically but it's always wonderful to have callers who are willing to call in and jam on uh, any number of topics as has happened this evening so i'd like to thank you very much for uh, for listening to this podcast and there will be uh future ones like this no doubt coming out in the feed it's been a wonderful opportunity to uh to share ideas with the community anyway tom Barley signing out